Kay Millie Falcher, or a hundred thousand welcomes to you from Scotland and the Scottish Liberty Podcast number one zero four. And as if we haven't spoiled you guys enough with our stellar cast over the last couple of weeks, what have we got from today, my main man, Anthony Samarov? The effervescent Bob Murphy, author of the new book, Contra Krugman, longtime host, co-host of both the Contra Krugman podcast and the Lara Murphy show. And he is an Austrian economist. He's got his PhD in economist. He's a real economist, unlike me. But he did write the foreword to my real book on fake economics uh, very kindly, Universal Basic Income For and Against. So I'm very thankful, which, by the way, you can download from beyourselfandloveit.com forward slash UBI for free if you don't want to buy it on Amazon. And I thought, what better a time to have Bob on the show after he kindly wrote that for me than now? Uh, and also, by the way, I wanted to say um, thank you very much for your tutelage because we had some email exchanges uh, before I put the book out where you put me right on some things. And uh, I really, really, really appreciated that because I know you're busy and you, you don't necessarily have to send me emails. So I just want to thank you for that. Sure thing. Just happy to do it. Excellent. So your new book is Contra Krugman in which you flee to death the myths perpetuated by the Austrian economist, sorry, the Keynesian economist, Bob Murphy. And uh, there's an gonna... awkward Freudian slip. And yeah. that's <laughs> weird as hell. Uh, do, do, does Paul Krugman by any chance come from Austria? As <laughs> Perhaps uh, it was in the other sense, Austria. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows where Bob? Maybe it's a lot of Viennese whirls or something. I've got no idea. So uh, we actually took quite a lot of questions from the internet, but I wanted to kick off with something that you've written an article on in the past and we still hear a lot about here in the UK even though it's passed quite a long way um, which is that the British tried austerity and it failed it died after the um, economic crisis and you had a particular analysis of why we didn't have austerity here in the UK I was wondering if you could fill us in Sure. So, I mean, it, it, with all these things, it depends on which particular time period you're looking at and so on. But um, I, I was probably drawing on the work of Veronique de Rouge. So it's, you know, D-E and then a space and R-U-G-Y is how you spell her name. So she had been writing a lot of stuff on this at the time. So, yeah, it was, you know, early on Keynesians like Paul Krugman were coming out in, you know, 2009, 2010, lamenting the turn towards austerity and um, the UK and other and uh, continental Europe and and she was just showing the statistics and it was like there was a huge surge in spending in 2008 2009 among various countries and then maybe in some of them it, it tapered off you know right. and so and and also what happened in some places so later on depending again on which particular country you're looking at which time period some of them may in fact have cut their spending but it was only because their debt was going up so much because of the huge deficits they were running and according to the Keynesian plan, and they yeah. were still in a bad recession. So with all this stuff, if the Keynesian remedy had actually worked, it wouldn't have been an issue. They, their economy would have been fine. And then, you know, spending would have gone down to normal levels. It was only, you know, the, the ones that engaged in, in actual austerity, meaning they, they literally cut spending at some point. That was only because they tried big deficits for a few years and it didn't work. And then their, you know, finance ministers started getting nervous. The other wild card in all of this 
is it, there's a big difference from an Austrian perspective. If if the government is running big deficits and it wants to you know stop, it wants to close the budget gap. There's a big difference between whether they cut spending or raise taxes. So there were plenty of countries that the way they were going to engage in you know fiscal austerity was by raising taxes. And of course, you know it's not surprising to me as an Austrian that if a country does that, it's going to have a bad economy because yeah. they're raising taxes. So that you know that that doesn't embarrass me at all. Whereas Krugman, so Krugman, we had a lot of things where he would have like scatter plots of countries in terms of you know their fiscal stance and then their GDP growth, and there was a negative relationship. Besides the causality correlation problem, even putting that aside, yeah, I have no problem saying if a, if a government raises taxes, that's going to hurt economic growth. How is that supposed to be embarrassing to me? What you need to do is look at countries where the government cuts spending is the primary way to close a budget gap. And there's actual historical examples where that was fine. And mm. Krugman has to explain them away and say, well, the central bank offset the austerity by cutting interest rates or, you know, their currency fell. And so their exports grew. And, it's and amazing I have all this in the book. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I just said it's amazing he even acknowledges them. Uh, but we, but some things were cut here. I know because people were complaining about it, whether it was disability allowance or, uh, and we heard horror stories of people dying in their houses. So, um, or uh, because they couldn't afford it, afford electricity. Um, the idea was that the Tories were engaged in class war against the least well-off in society. I mean, well, I guess. Sorry, sorry, go go ahead, guys. Paul. No, I was, I was going to say, I mean, I guess you could make a case that, that while they were making projected cuts, I mean, most of the cuts were projected in the future, not immediate. And as far as I know, the Tories actually increased spending in many areas, uh, public spending, um, but just not in those areas where those on the left would maybe prefer them to be spent, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And with, with a lot of these things, again, so it's, you know, I don't want to make broad sweeping claims yeah. because it depends which particular, I know early on when Krugman was first accusing, you know, the UK and other governments of engaging in austerity, that was just flat out wrong. Like yeah. it was that, yeah, the, the rate of increase was lower than it had been or something like that. Or sometimes too, what they'll do is like, you know, one party will put forward a projected government budget increase and then somebody else who's more conservative will cut from that budget. Right, yeah. But at an absolute level, it's still more spending than it was the previous fiscal period. You know, there, yeah. there's tricks like that too. But no matter what you do, you could always say, okay, well, was spending in 2011 bigger than it was per capita in 2003 or something? And clearly it's going to be bigger. You know what I mean? So if you do a long enough period, yeah. So if people were dying in the streets in 2011, it's not because the government wasn't spending enough money because then, well, gee, how come everyone didn't die in 1985? You know? Okay. Yeah. Maybe they've become more dependent since yeah. then. Right. Well, there's and, that and the other thing too is, even if that were true, again, so I'm, you know, I don't, we would have to go investigate every specific thing, but that yeah. just underscores why you don't want the government in charge of life's necessities. Right. You know I mean, so if, yeah, you're right. I, I wouldn't want politicians in charge of my health care, in charge of my electricity. And so, yeah. you know, you don't hear stories about nobody could get beer. The people, right. you know what I mean? Like yeah. the, 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 the private nobody sector get gets beer to everybody. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, right. And so the make, make electricity and health care is as dependable as beer. Leave it to the private yeah. sector. Make yeah. electricity great again. 
<laughs> yeah, it's funny. Had no nobody would suggest for a moment, and not even those I'd know the most leftist of people would suggest that the government should run supermarkets. You know, but they and 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 most people will die of lack of food. You know, before unless there's something seriously medical medically wrong with you, you will die from lack of food before you'll die from lack of medical uh, treatment. But nobody suggests that the government should run supermarkets or restaurants. You know. Right, and that, and I make that point. I mean, so obviously I'm more familiar with U.S. politics, but yeah. yeah, I make the same point that the way we handle these sorts of things is, is yes, people, Americans won't tolerate somebody literally dying of starvation, and so we have yeah. things like the food stamp program. So the federal government will give, but what they do is, you know, they give you the ability to go buy food. They don't, mm -hmm. like you say, they don't nationalize the whole grocery yeah. store thing because I think Americans do realize, yeah, that would not be a good system. <laughs> Okay, I've got a fallacy. It's one of my favorite fallacies that people give me, and I've tried to tackle it before, but I'm really interested in your take on it. Um, it always reminds me of the quote from Bastia in his, uh, the beginning of his book, Economic Sophisms, where he basically says, we have this problem because our, our opponents can utter a half-truth in one sentence, which sounds superficially plausible, but to demonstrate that it's a half-truth, we have to have recourse to long and di dry dissertations. And if that wasn't enough of a long and dry dissertation in itself, my uh, That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, my question basically is, we hear this a lot on the left, and it does sound superficially plausible. Um, well, here's the thing. People on low incomes go out and spend their money in the local economy, and that boosts the local economy, whereas uh, rich people just you know, they invest it or they put it away or they do something that's not as helpful as poor people having the money. Therefore, it's a great argument for taxation or even um, printing money and giving it to the people at the bottom. Why is it wrong? Why is it an incorrect idea to think that taxing the rich to help the poor in that way is, uh, is say, going to promote economic growth and the spread of well-being? Okay, and you're right. This is the kind of thing where to really fully convey what's wrong with that, you know, you got to sit there and follow a train of argument, and yeah, where it seems absolutely. so obvious. Yeah, if, if spending money is is prosperity, then you know, get, give resources to people who are going to spend it. Um, so, so the main thing is in terms of just thinking it through, the, the the path to prosperity is not people spending currency, right? It's very easy to walk into a store and hand over pieces of paper. That's easy. The hard thing is to actually physically produce the stuff. And so, you know, the, the reason we have a higher standard of living now than people 200 years ago isn't because we have more pieces of paper of currency. It's because, you know, we have better technology. We have more machinery and tools and equipment to, you know, to augment our labor. And so we can produce more stuff. That's why we right. can consume more. So once you realize that, you realize that the mere act of spending per se, I mean, you, you could give poor people or anybody as much money as you want. The government just prints up, you know, a million euros or a million pounds or a million dollars per person and gives it to them. That doesn't mean everyone in the country all of a sudden is a millionaire because right. there's not, there's not more cars. There's not more houses. Yeah. There's not more food. Yeah. It just means all the prices would go up. Right. Mm. So, you know, when you, when you think through those kind of basic things, you realize that, yeah, just giving poor people more money so they can go spend it. It best all that means is they're going to redistribute, you know, the res like the the output that is produced will go into their hands rather than someone else's, 
So you might ethically think that's okay, but it's not. But doesn't that pass on to the companies? Doesn't that money then go to the companies who just got that money from the shop so they can reinvest in their production? And, you know, or you, the, the money, when they go out and spend that money, then the companies that they buy stuff from get that money. And that helps them produce more stuff. It, it helps them pay people to produce more stuff. That's the theory. That's well, what. Yeah, I mean, so I, 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 I grant you that that's what the logic is, but I'm saying that's an extremely short-sighted view to think that the thing that keeps the economy going is someone being willing to hand over a piece of paper. Okay. And I'm saying, no, it's whatever, how many pieces of paper there are, prices can adjust. If we doubled all the money everybody held, it basically prices would just double. That wouldn't mean all of a sudden there'd be twice as many cars. Mm. It's just a given car would now cost twice as many pounds or euros or whatever. Right. And so... So just giving someone more money that so the real like a, a company if it's deciding do I want to invest in a project or not, the issue isn't how much can I sell the, the product for mm. it's how much can I sell it for compared to how much do I have to pay to get the resources to make it. Right. Yeah. So that's really. Oh, that's so, a great point. Yeah. So it's it's not you know how much is being spent per se it's the the structure of prices. Okay, so this is this is the way that I put it together in my head, and I would like to know if I've got the correct idea here. So if you allow those greedy rich people to keep their money, they're not going to be going out to the local economy and spending it, but they are going to have to decide what to invest that money in. And they're going to have to guess what people are going to want to buy in the future. They might have a really good idea for a product, or someone else might have one. If they're allowed to, if they make the wrong decision, then their investments will go bust and they'll actually lose that money they invented. But if they do have a good plan and make a good investment, that means that they're investing in stuff that people in general want. So they get more resources from making a good investment, which over time means the people who accumulate lots of wealth, at least on a free market, not a crony capitalist system, are the people who've been shown to invest that money wisely. And therefore, it's probably a good thing that they've got a couple of billions to invest because they're good at guessing which products are going to create things that people want. Is there anything I've missed or would you agree that that's a correct framing? of that phenomenon. Right. So I endorse everything you just said that, yes, again, and it's your caveats were important too, that yeah, to the extent that it really is a market economy and it's not plagued by government favoritism, then yes, generally speaking, somebody who is a profitable investor, you know, somebody whose wealth keeps growing over time because they wisely manage, you know, their investments, that's a signal to say they're using the scarce resources available to channel them into things that the consumers want to spend their money on. Because what yeah. does it mean to, to you know invest in a profitable business? It means the business is spending less money on the inputs than it's able to make the product or service and then sell it to the customer. So it's like creating value, loosely speaking, and that's you know that's that's generally a good thing. That's like the consumers implicitly endorsing. Yep, I like the way this firm's handling resources. It's taking resources that are worth ten thousand and turning them into products that we're willing to pay fourteen thousand for. So that's in a sense you know, augmenting the value of those resources, if you want to think of it like that. So that's great. The other thing, just maybe another way intuitively to try to shake people away from this idea that you're a benefactor of society if you go spend money and consume, whereas you're this stingy, antisocial person if you hoard it. It's, just think about that. Like the, the best thing, the most altruistic person in the world would be the person who goes and works 100-hour, you know, weeks 
and and never consumes, right? Just puts mm. everything in and doesn't take anything out for himself. And the, right. and the opposite, the most selfish antisocial person who's real greedy would be the person who just consumes and consumes and takes things yeah. away from the total pie and doesn't put anything in. And How so dare it's, it's, you <laughs> use the terms altruistic and right. selfish? Don't you know I'm an Ayn Rand enthusiast? <laughs> Right. Sorry. So, so what about in the in the case of uh, I mean, most some people at this point will turn around and go, well, okay, what about the the the, the what about the guy who just hoards money? You know, he doesn't spend, he just hoards all the money, sticks it under his mattress. He's or he's you know this the stereotypical fat cat. He's wiping his butt with fifty dollar bills and you know mm -hmm. lighting his you know big Cuban cigars with a hundred dollar bills. What about that guy? Would it be fair to say that? Provided we don't print more money, that really any money that's left in circulation after the hoarder does that would just be worth more, or is that a simplistic view? You, no, you're exactly right, and that's that's kind of what I was getting at there. That even right. though that's that's held up as like, you know, the reductio ad absurdum yeah. of the worst possible thing yeah. they could do. Think about it. That means that person's. I mean, part of the problem is I think the average person doesn't think like a, an investor contributes anything to society no, so they think they're so, just yeah, uh, right. yeah. skimming so, off the top yeah right so that's, that's part of the issue but but imagine somebody who like yeah. is, a, is a high paid corporate you know so somebody who who's performing labor services and getting paid and then just never spends the money they, they take their paycheck week after week and just put it under their mattress in the form of, yeah. of cash yeah if you think about that i mean that's that person would be working producing stuff that other people find valuable and then never taking anything yeah to consume like you know that's that's like what slavery is you know, you know yeah. I mean? the slaves produce yeah. and they don't get to enjoy any of it and so it's weird like this the keynesian mindset pushes you into thinking people mm -hmm. who do nothing but work and then never sure. get to enjoy any of the benefits are the are the parasites whereas people who just spend and consume everything and then don't earn as much as they spend they're supposed to be the benefactor that's no if anything it's the opposite on the point of slavery, I must add, slavery. <laughs> okay. Slavery. <laughs> tell you where there won't be any slavery, though. On the contrary, Chris. <laughs> get your ticket to the contrary, Chris. Okay. Oh my God. So why why is it? I mean, I'm not a really educated man, Bob. I'm certainly not an economist, but it makes sense to me. Uh, Anthony's a lot more au fait with this kind of stuff than I am, but he's not. I don't suppose he's a what you would call a you know college educated economist. But why did why does it it seems so plain and easy to understand when you put it in these terms? Why do people who've studied economics not get it? Not yeah, get it. Question. <laughs> or and even have some of them have even operated in the business world and they don't seem to get it. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean. I guess part of the part of it is, you know, you you could come up with models. So, so the the sort of simplistic thing, you know, intuitive things about, yeah. you know, producing. You have to produce for a, a modern trained Keynesian economist would say, yeah, 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 we get that. What we're talking about though, is like when an economy is is stuck in a in a recession, right? And there, you know, workers can't find jobs, and so in that scenario, yes, you do want to stimulate spending. So, so that's what they would say. So that yeah, the Keynesian would admit, yeah, you have to produce something first before you consume it. And in general, printing up more money doesn't make your country richer. It just makes prices go up. But they would say, if we're just talking about a country where there's slack, you know, where total output. In the output, short term, yeah. 
in the yeah, short that's what they term, would say. because in the long run, we're all dead, Bob. <laughs> right, exactly. So go on. Sorry. Anyway, so I'm, I'm saying, I mean, I certainly in in the contra recruitment book, you know, I go through and try to answer those objections. But but yeah, that's what they would say that okay, we're talking about here short term remedies. Yes, we realize the market would fix itself eventually, and in the long run, you know, you can't produce or you can't consume more than you produce. But yeah, there's these short term holes that the market gets stuck in, and there's a role for the government to sort of jumpstart things. That that's what they would say. Okay. Okay. So I've got a question for you. It's a bit esoteric, uh, but I'm really interested in theories we of do values. Like doing esoterics we on this show. Well, it's good because like people might have heard you speak and other things, and they don't always hear want to hear the same questions answered. So uh, kind of tra- throwing curveballs. No one else will tell you this, but uh, me. But I am really interested in theories of value. Something I never thought I would say in my life. <laughs> but I had a debate with a friend of ours who's a Randian, and they believe that everything's objective, including value, um, which is different from, say, like the Marx's labor theory of value. And, um, you know, but they've got an objection to what I think is the Austrian theory of value, which is kind of like the, I think it's called the marginal, um, damn. Subject, I think it's called the marginal subjective theory of value, but I'm not sure. So I could have that completely wrong. What, from your perspective as an Austrian economist, is the correct idea on value? And I would add, chuck into that, if you can mention why a diamond is more valuable than drinking water, because apparently econom- that baffled economists for ages and ages and ages, that would also be helpful. Okay, sure. So how about, I'll, I'll, I don't want to like take up a, a real long time, so I'll give Please. a quick answer, then you just follow up if you want to pull some sure. more out of it. Um, so yeah, the, the standard Austrian view, it's the subjective marginal utility theory. And yeah, so that word subjective means that value, it, when, we, when we talk about economic value, so we're not talking about like morality or you know, mm-hmm. theological things, we just mean in terms of value in an economic sense, that ultimately that's subjective. In a real simple way, you know, two, two two kids are at school with their lunch, and one kid has bologna, and one kid has peanut butter. And if they each like the other kid's sandwich more than what they have, and they trade, mm. they could they could both correctly think, "I'm walking away with the sandwich that's more valuable." Right. There, there's no contradiction. Whereas they couldn't both think, "I have the sandwich that weighs more," or "I have the sandwich with more calories," because those are objective. Yeah, facts about the sandwiches, but but the value attributed to it that's based on you know, yeah. your preference. I mean, the the, the 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 bologna may be more expensive than the Jello or the peanut butter or whatever to to produce. But, right. Uh, so it, yeah. yeah. So they might say it has a higher price, but in terms yeah. of they say what's more valuable to me, sure. or what do I have you know attributed more importance to? So that's the, the so yeah, foundation. That's, a, that's, a, that's an important that's distinction then. Price, price, and value. Yeah. You yeah. read my mind because that's what I was going to ask you about as a follow-up question, which is our friend said that by saying that value was subjective, I was confusing value and price. He said, no, price is subjective, but value is is objective. For example, would you agree that water has objective value? And I was like, well, no, not really. Um, So have you heard that Randian idea uh, before and would you comment on it? Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't claim to be an expert in Randian, um, 
you know, epistemology or yeah, theory yeah. of ethics or anything. But yes, I have heard, I know George Reisman one time who, you know, is a, is a big fan of Mises, but also a yes. brand. I didn't hear him give the talk, but I, I know he has given at least a talk. Maybe he's written on it sort of critiquing subjective value theory. Oh, I'd love to read that. Yeah. And I, I think he's just making a category mistake in that he's assuming, so, you know, like I'm, I'm Christian, so I don't, th I don't think that, that morality is subjective or that ethics are subjective. You know, I mean, I think there's mm -hmm. an objective, you know, right sure. or wrong and that thing. It's not like, well, what's right for you could be wrong for me or that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but when I talk about subjective value theory, I, I mean, in economics context. So, th so there's that element. Um, as far as the the water diamond paradox, the 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 so the idea is okay. Economists knew, you know, way back fifteen sixteen hundred. Everybody knows the the value of things in the marketplace, like you know the the market price of things, what, that has something to do with their usefulness for human beings. You know that there's some relationship there, and yet it does seem to be a paradox because yeah, like. A, a gallon of water is, you know, water is, is essential for life, whereas yeah. diamonds are just, you know, a luxury item. And yet how come a given amount of diamonds has a higher price than water? Yeah. And so there, that's the other element of that. What I remember I said, subjective marginal utility theory. So it's that mar the word marginal. And this is the thing mm. that Carl Menger was one of the pioneers. Yeah. If you look up the, you know, marginal utility theory, you'll see Matt Carl Menger, the founder of the Austrian school, yeah. In 1871, is credited as one of the discoverers of this, and so there, the idea is that if yeah, if you had to choose between all the water in the world or all the diamonds, you would pick the water. The, the total yeah. water has more value than the total diamonds. But yeah. in any given market transaction, you're picking between that gallon of water, that glass of water, and so yeah. on the margin, a glass of water for most people doesn't really matter. You take it away, who cares? Because you have so much water compared to the uses for it. Yeah. So that's that's I'm, the idea. Yeah. So I might uh, enjoy the first glass of water to drink, the second one to wash under my arms, the third <laughs> one to whatever. Yeah. But so, I mean, I, I don't know if diamonds are necessarily a, a good point of reference. And in terms of, I mean, I don't know enough about it, but it seems to me that diamonds are actually plentiful, you know, and the only thing that makes them more valuable than, you know, is, is the fact that the beers manages to, uh, Restrict supply. Restrict supply and keep a monopoly on that. I mean, I don't know if that's true, but that that, that that's, that's my my take on it. I mean, I I confess I don't know enough about, yeah. but mm. I, my hunch is that even if you know you broke that because it's it's not you know the question is not how much diamonds are are physically located in the sphere of Earth. Yeah. It matters like how expensive would it be to bring them all to the surface. Right. So, um, well, apparently, yeah, Democratic I, Republic of Congo—they're lying about on the ground. There's so many of them, but yeah, you know, it's. But I don't know. That, that's that. You that hear these things. Right. But you would have to go through the Democratic <laughs> Cong, uh, uh, Republic of the Congo, which well, is that's a why they keep dangerous it war, country. So. Yeah. So, <laughs> so okay, I've got a couple of more questions. Then I'd love. We're going to play a game. But then, fine. I should have mentioned that in the intro because everyone gets excited for a game. Yeah. And then finally, we'll take questions game from the drones. internet. <laughs> game of drones. Well, that's certainly <laughs> not to describe you, Bob. But to a non to a non economist uh, enthusiast, they might well think this is game of drones. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I love this one. Um, 
there's this idea of the Keynesian multiplier, which is that if you print money and give it to people, well, they go out and spend that money, and then those people go out and spend that money. And it's really related to the previous question on this sort of thing, so I should have really asked it before. But can you please put a spear, put to bed once and for all, the ridiculous notion of the Keynesian multiplier? Okay, yes. Yeah, so again, the, the idea is that um, you know, if, if, like if the government runs a hundred billion dollar deficit, then, you know, the, the first round people get the income and then they have extra income. And so then they might spend 80 billion more. And then those mm -hmm. people get another 80 billion in income and then they might spend 60 billion more. And yeah. so you'd like the, the initial burst of extra spending, like just ripples through the economy. And so then you can calculate and figure out, okay, how much total income does it generate? Uh, and then that it's so dumb that it makes me cringe even hear you, <laughs> hearing you say that. Yeah. So, there, so that's, the, that's the idea. And then they can, you know, try to assess it. Yeah. And so it comes up with figures like, Oh, you know, if, if we're in a recession and we have a $2 trillion shortfall, well, the government doesn't need to spend an extra 2 trillion. If the multiplier is four, then it only needs to spend, you know, 500 billion. And then you know right. you'll you'll fill the gap in because of this spillover or this multiplier effect. So that that's the the logic of it. So yeah, I mean, there's lots of different ways of seeing why that's wrong. Um, you know, or I think the the fundamental point is just to realize that spending per se is not what causes prosperity. And and so you know, if if there's a problem with a recession, something's out of whack. The normal market mechanism has been disrupted. And when you explain what that is, it's not because, oh, people just aren't spending enough. You know, there's something else going on. So that's one element. But also, like Murray Rothbard did a reductio ad absurdum that I liked in, in his book, Man, Economy, and State. He used the same, like, analytical tools by which a Keynesian would say, therefore, the government's spending multiplier is whatever, 2.8. Yeah. And, and so Rothbard had an equation, and he said, the income of the reader, meaning the person reading Rothbard's book, is such and such. And then national income is such and such. And so he figured out that, you know, the reader of his book's income was like one one billionth of national income or let's say one one yeah. three hundred million. So he proved that the reader's income had a you know three hundred million multiplier. And so he said, all the government needs to do is to give you the reader of my book ten dollars and GDP mm. goes up by, you know, by three hundred million dollars or something. And so he right. was, you know, he was just showing that, wait a minute, so that the flaw is you can look backwards and look at relationships and the amount of spending of one firm compared to total GDP and say, oh, there's a multiplier, but obviously that's going to break down if you then try to use a causal relationship. So that's what he was trying to get at there, that just because the reader's income is a certain percentage of the national output doesn't mean you give that reader 10 bucks and all of a sudden GDP goes to the roof. That's clearly wrong. And yet right. that was the same logic by which the Keynesians were trying to justify, hey, the government can spend money on anything and it's just going to ripple through the economy. Um, I would just add to that. I kind of was trying, when I was trying to conceptualize, because you mentioned if there's a recession where there's something not going right in the economy and the means of production, what they are producing is clearly wrong because people aren't going to, aren't buying it. So they made stuff that people don't want. Uh, when I was trying to conceptualize this, I tried to come up with an analogy for the negative effects of that. And I said, well, imagine you've got a car factory. Now, the American government has never bailed out a car manufacturer, <laughs> but if it had, supposing you were in, a, in the middle of a recession and uh, you had this car factory 
and it was going out of business. So they said, well, let's stimulate the economy and make sure that our homegrown businesses stay in business. You pump out some more money and people go out and buy more cars because they're more plush. They feel richer because the, the money's circulating. Now, what's going to happen actually in the long term is you've just made it worse because that factory is now going to sell say two times, three times as many cars as they would have sold. But then the need for demand of cars is even more met than it was when they were struggling in the first place. So what's going to happen is instead of just having to close one plant down in a few years, that car manufacturer is going to have to close three plants down or five plants down because you sped up. It's the, it, it, it is, have I, do you think that my, analogy is is a good example is there anything i missed and do you, you just imagine that over the whole economy instead of just a car manufacturer the car manufacturers just exemplify what's happening across the whole economy when you stimulate right i think that's a good example and i think everything you said is fine i well, i guess i would try to get people to remember to step back and realize there's there's only a scarce amount of resources so we can't just produce you know, you can't produce an infinite number of cars, an infinite number of houses, an infinite number of TVs. Yeah. There are trade-offs that have to be made. If you make more cars, that means there's less of other things that can be right. made. Right, that's a good point and so, as well. And we know that central planning doesn't work for various you know, incentive reasons, mm. corruption, and also what, what Mises called the calculation problem. Yeah. You just, you know, you use a certain amount of resources to make this a thousand cars. Looking at the, the the physical engineering aspect of it, you don't know whether that was a good move or not. You know, because because again, value is subjective. It's not just a chemical or an engineering problem. It's it also you know involves people's subjective evaluations. So that's what the market economy does with prices and people spending money and the accountants and whatever. They perform a legitimate intellectual task of helping the system decide if you want to use that language how many resources go into cars, how many go into housing. And so if the car manufacturers are losing money, if they're unprofitable and they're scaling back their operations, that's a signal that those resources should be going elsewhere. That, yeah, yeah. That right now we're making too many cars. We need to make more of something else. And so that's the issue. So you're right that if the government comes in and short circuits and, or overrules that, that signal and, and takes resources coercively from people, to give them to the car manufacturer, that's you know that's that's uh, masking the problem that the the unprofitability was trying to to manifest. It. So you're you're yeah. not making you're not making us richer. All you're doing is saying, okay, now we're making more cars than something else. And people, when they were voluntarily allowed to spend their money the way they wanted to, they were trying to tell the entrepreneurs, we want more of this other thing, not cars. And the government yeah. said, no, no, we're not doing it. You're going to get more cars, damn it. Sure. What's the turn to the financial crisis? I mean, we've had some, we had a, a huge crash, obviously, in, 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 in recent memory. Let's try and drive a stake once and for all. It's hard because this thing keeps coming back. It's like a vampire. You know, uh, the notion that deregulation caused the crash. These banks and financial institutions were allowed to play fast and loose with the rules, uh, and this is what precipitated it. And what we need is more regulation. How do we deal with that, Bob? Okay, sure. So I don't know exactly how the narrative was spun out, you know, in the UK yeah. or in continental, but certainly in the United States, yeah, once the crisis happened, people on the progressive left needed to come up with some way to blame laissez-faire capitalism. Yeah. So the particular thing that they latched onto 
was that in the late 90s, ironically, under the Bill Clinton administration, yeah. there was um, a, a tweak to uh, some of the legislation. It was called Glass-Steagall. It was legislation that had been passed in the 1930s in the New Deal. And so what that legislation, among other things, had done was to put a pretty strict boundary between investment banking and commercial banking. So like companies had to do one or the other. And so what the, the minor deregulation of the late 90s sort of relaxed that. So a given financial institution could dabble in both. Um, and so people were saying, ah, that was the deregulation. But Tom Woods in his book, um, Meltdown, does a really good job of just showing that what a yeah. red herring that is. Because in other words, the companies that were making bad mortgages or that were taking them and packaging them in mortgage-backed securities yeah, and then got funds, yeah. Yeah, they were they would have all been able to do all that stuff that they were doing in like 2003 to 2006. Yeah. They would have been legally allowed to do that under the rules as of 1998. You know, so in other words, it wasn't like all the people that did stupid things during the housing bubble could only do it because of the, the change in the regulations. So that was a complete red herring. Okay. Um, so there's that element. And then also too, again, speaking of the United States experience, I mean, there, there's a great mo uh, movie documentary coming out called the bubble that uh, Jimmy Morrison and some is putting out that I'm in and some Peter Schiff, they go quote, and right. he's got great footage in there of like George W. Bush, um, Barney Frank, all these people from the US government proud of themselves in the early 2000s for how they're encouraging home ownership. All these government programs yeah. to encourage banks to give mortgages to people that wouldn't normally qualify just yeah, on help the buy schemes, so yeah. forth. Yeah. And so and so it's it's ludicrous for them people to say, oh, well, the freak. I mean, it's, you know, the government literally on purpose was, you know, proudly pushing banks to give mortgages to people. And then, of course, you know, the huge role of the Federal Reserve mm. that, you know, by, after the dot com crash in the early 2000, the late, late 90s, early 2000, the 9-11 terrorist attacks in the U.S., the U.S. economy should have had a bad recession. And so the Federal Reserve under Alan Greenspan cut interest rates down to 1%. And people were saying Greenspan was the maestro. Look at look at what he housing was booming in the US even after the dot-com crash. So everybody was clapping their hands about what a great central banker Greenspan was because he stimulated housing. So okay, you can say that, but then you can't say five years later, oh gee, the free market you had caused a housing bubble. You know, that doesn't compute. So you can't. Right. You can't, you know, congratulate government officials and central bankers for boosting housing above what the market would have done and then blame the market for a housing bubble. Well, we certainly get uh, quite a buzz off of a couple of glasses of whiskey here in Scotland, <laughs> Scotch, but um, we certainly don't feel as buzzed the next day. So, uh, but no one gets to say, well, do you know what? The high was because of the whiskey, but see the hangover? nothing to do with it whatsoever <laughs> yeah it's because you guys switched to water what the heck yeah yeah <laughs> well yeah I've got, switched to well we've got here. plenty of it bob yeah it's one yeah, thing scotland's not short of is water yeah <laughs> but we are kind of short on diamonds so you ever send us any diamonds please if you ever visit scotland don't come here during our monsoon season which lasts from early january to late december every year so uh, yeah <laughs> Right. Okay. Now I've got uh, a bell here, and the reason why is because it's time to participate in our new game show. It's called Krugman Versus, where I'm going to read you a quote from Paul Krugman, and then you're going to tell me who Paul Krugman's critic is. Okay. Okay. 
Is Social Security a Ponzi scheme? Asked Krugman on October the 22nd of 2012. Take the common claim on the right that Social Security is a Ponzi scheme because the system has few real assets. It's true that Social Security is mainly a system in which each generation pays for the previous generation's retirement and the expectation that it will receive the same treatment from the next generation. But like monetary circulation, this process can go on forever. There's nothing unsustainable about it. Yes, demographically, but that's about levels of taxes and benefits, not the fundamental nature of the scheme. So there's nothing Ponzi-esque at all. Um, and I had to try really, really hard to make uh, Krugman's overblown writing interesting to listen to. Tom, would you be the do me the good of reading this uh, contrary favor, view? I think, okay, yeah, from, sure. Here comes the contrary. From 1996-97 issue of the Boston Review, quote, I like Freeman's idea for dividing each individual with a trust fund when young rather than retirement benefits when old. Oh, by the way, if this sounds terrible, this is his writing, okay, it's not me. Continue with the quote. But we had better realize that this is a significant change in the character of the social insurance system. Social security is structured from the point of view of the recipients as if it were an ordinary retirement plan. What you get out depends on what you put in. So it does not look like a redistributionist scheme. In practice, it has turned out to be strongly redistributionist, but only because of its Ponzi game aspect in which each generation takes more out than it put in. Well, the Ponzi game will soon be over thanks to changing demographics so that the typical recipient henceforth will get only about as much as he or she put in and okay okay so yeah so clearly that first one you're saying was krugman saying there's nothing ponzi ask about it and that makes sense and then yet you had that second quote from someone who was clearly calling it a ponzi game scheme yeah. so i you know presumably that's a right winger um she's uh was that uh, was it arthur laffer it's uh, Paul Krugman oh. on the 1996-97 issue of Boston Review. <laughs> Next. All right, that's embarrassing. I should have known that. Okay. <laughs> on the case for financial stimulus, please. Fiscal stimulus. Fiscal stimulus. Read the damn thing. Probably. Okay. February 20th, 2014. Quote, the case for stimulus was that we were suffering from a huge shortfall in overall spending and that the hit to the economy from the financial crisis and the bursting of the housing bubble was so severe that the Federal Reserve, which normally fights recessions by cutting short-term interest rates, couldn't overcome the slump on its own. The idea then was to provide a temporary boost both by having the government directly spend more and by using tax cuts and public aid to boost family incomes, inducing more private spending, unquote. That okay, so that's, that's Krugman, right? You're saying, and now, what, you're going to read a critic? Yeah, yeah, that's okay. uh, 1999. What continues to amaze me is this. Japan's 1999 strategy of massive, unsustainable deficit spending in the hopes that this will somehow generate a self-sustained recovery it's currently regarded as the orthodox, sensible thing to do, even though it can be justified only by exotic stories about multiple equilibria, the sort of thing you would imagine only a professor could believe. Huh, that's interesting. So it's clearly this guy from 99. It's somebody who's skeptical of professors who think that Japan's deficit spending could stimulate the economy. Well, by him, like sort of disparaging professors, I would think it's somebody in the financial sector, like, um, you know, somebody who runs a business. I, I don't know. Is, is it Peter Schiff? 
It's Paul Krugman. Oh, that was Krugman too, man. All right. Yeah. <laughs> he does it to himself, you know, as uh, <laughs> as Radiohead have astutely pointed out. Okay. On world, do you want to go first? I'll go first. Okay. On World War Two, as an example of Keynesian multiplier. Quote, World War II is the great natural experiment in the effects of large increases in government spending and, as such, has always served as an important positive example for those of us who favor an activist approach to a depressed economy, unquote. Okay, yeah, that's definitely Krugman. He's saying, citing World War II time and again. Okay, I got it. Now, what's the critic got to say? Let's get ready for this Jerry, one. Get this one right. I know I will. The broken window fallacy, I believe. January 22nd, 2009. The prospect of a Keynesian stimulus is having a weird effect on conservative economies as first-rate economies keep making it truly boneheaded arguments against the effort. The last entry, Robert Barrow argues that the multiplier on government spending is low because real GDP during World War II rose by less than military spending. Actually, I've already taken that one on. But just to say again, there was a war on. I can't quite imagine the mindset that leads someone to forget all this and think that you can use World War II to estimate the multiplier that might prevail in an underemployed ration free economy an underemployed I should have said huh okay well this one this one's a little bit trickier because this person's not necessarily anti-Keynesian but this person is saying you can't use World War II to estimate the multiplier whereas you know you, you showed Krugman earlier saying World War II is the classic Keynesian example of how you stimulate um so I'm I guess I'm gonna think it's probably like some middle-of-the-road academic who's not really political one way or the other uh I don't know, uh, Josh Barrow. It's Paul Krugler. Wow, this guy. <laughs> Man. So, <laughs> if you hadn't guessed at home, these are just three of the many contradictions of Paul Krugman exposed by Bob's new book, Contra Krugman, which I desperately impeach you to buy off Amazon right now. Get clicking. You you have your marching orders. Okay. Yeah. You can go to contracrugmanbook.com to see like some of the blurbs and, and more oh. about what it is. Yeah. <laughs> can you tell people what that is in case some of your it's, listeners don't exactly. know? Exactly. Tell the people at home what the hell that is. <laughs> I thought I was uh, laboring an end joke here, but most of our people are in case people just familiar. thought you were <laughs> degenerating into some sort what of retarding book. <laughs> Bob Murphy was featured, and you can read it, you can watch it now. <laughs> In a video called "Interview with the jo Zombie," interview with yeah. the zombie by can our I, benefactor Tom Woods. Can I just uh, point out that our Mister Samarov has taken some medicinal substance today, and he's pretty much he's he's pretty much bouncing that. off the ceiling. I assume you're talking about aspirin, but okay. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay, what I'm fine. About. I'll tell you the story. Um, I, I'm not a weed smoker, despite the fact that everyone thinks I'm a complete hippie, and I've not smoked this stuff in about ten years. But uh, a friend of mine told me that uh, they had this cannabis oil, which is apparently very good for anxiety. And I thought, okay, well, why not try it? Honestly, first time I've ever tried it. Um, he told me that it was only the ingredient in cannabis that doesn't make you high. But 
seemingly that's mm-hmm. incorrect. Yeah. <laughs> so and it's a good job you can't see him. By the way, this because stuff, he's actually floating around the room. Right. As he this this stuff is like. It's, like an it's, the, it's the legal it's the legal <laughs> it's the legal high as well apparently it's not prohibited okay. so i had no reason to think that it would have this effect on me yeah but now talking tom, heads, high, tom high, has high, exposed high, high. me to the world <laughs> yeah, exactly so I, I apologize for that to you guys okay. at home do we have some more well we just got in uh, questions from the internet I could, I, I could, unless you want to go ahead with them, I've got one that might. Yeah, just, please, okay. by all means. It's a kind of two-part question, maybe even three-part, but we could deal with it quickly. Um, I'm going to talk about Trump quickly. Uh, okay. In your opinion, Bob, uh, what's he doing wrong? What, if anything, is he doing right? Good question. And what's your prediction for the midterm? Okay, so um, what's he doing wrong? Uh, yeah. I'd... So certainly, Where to begin? <laughs> well, okay. So on, why don't I do it by type? So in terms of foreign policy, um, I certainly like the you know the, I I love what he did with North Korea. Okay, the right. fact that everybody calling him cozying up to dictator and he was willing to go ahead and meet with them. Yeah. Um, I, I really I would encourage if if people haven't seen it, to go look at Michael Malice's um, treatment of that when Malice had um, Scott Adams, the the guy, the Dilbert guy, he had him as a guest yeah. on his show. And it was a very enlightening podcast episode. So I, I would just okay. the way they analyze it, I thought it was great. Also, you know, Trump's attempts to sort of make things more uh, warm relations with Russia. You know, I think that's also good. The stuff with Syria, I mean, that it's terrible. And you know, I don't know if, Russia, if Trump is just doing that to kind of get the critics off his back. But no matter what his motivation yeah. is, it's just not good. Yeah. Um, as far as uh, you know, the immigrate. I, the stuff about breaking up families at the border. And I mean, that's just, to me, that's crazy. Um, I know Trump's critics will exaggerate it and make it sound like this is some unique thing that only Donald Trump did when it's, you know, so I I get all that, but still, you know, just the idea of breaking families up and, you know, that's, that's something I'm certainly not for. Um, The trade stuff, clearly it's not just that the policies are bad, but the way Trump tries to communicate, his his understanding or, or why he's doing it is just totally totally wrong so mm. uh, so that's you know i i'm disheartened by that as far as what he's doing though that's good there i mean that the the personal income and the corporate tax cuts from my perspective were yeah. great um yeah. and, uh, and i think it was you know, the fact that he got it through was was impressive that i wouldn't have predicted he would get such a large tax sure. cut through um, it's not the one that I would have designed in the sense, like if you told me ahead of time, okay, we're going to yeah. spend this much money in terms of tax cuts, what should we do? I mean, I would have tried to give more relief to, um, you know, middle right. class and, and lower income households, but still I'll take a tax cut. You know, I don't want the, the state taking more of people's money. Um, so I thought that was, that was really good. And I think even a lot of free market people underestimate how beneficial that would be for investment and things like that. So there's, so there's that okay. element. Um, he he actually has deregulated a lot. And on the issue where I'm, you know, kind of an expert in terms of energy economics, climate change stuff, the Trump administration has really been good in terms of rolling back a lot of the, um, interventions in the energy sector and transportation sector, allegedly in the name of fighting climate change. Um, That's where Trump really came pretty close to living up to his campaign promises. So I was very pleasantly surprised with that. So as far as the midterm... I don't know. It's it's so hard to say because if you had asked me a month or two ago, I would have thought the Republicans were going to get hammered. 
But mm-hmm. now I think the left has overplayed their hand, you know, and it's hard right. to, I mean, the stuff, I don't know how, how much this is like world coverage, but like the things that are happening with the Supreme Court nominees and things, it, it's yeah. um, just just some of this, the shrillest critics of the Trump administration. They're so over the top. I almost wonder if there's going to be a backlash in that. Right. Um, you know, maybe, maybe. So anyway, I, I I think there's there's all those elements. So I I sure. hesitate to say. Last thing I'll say is I think the Fed raising rates is going to lead to a crash, and that's yeah. not something you know Trump is responsible for. But certainly, if it happens while he's in the White House, people yeah, are going to blame exactly. him. Yeah. Is it who's advising them on on the economy, Bob? Do you know? I mean, or is it just Trump? <laughs> well, I mean, I guess he's got Larry Kudlow is in there now, and he still has um, well, the guy's name, the, the guy who's against international trade. The guy's name's escaping me at the moment. Sure. Um, I think that guy, you know, still. So Larry Kudlow is a supply side guy that goes way back. So he's, I think, behind the scenes, he's trying to temper some of Trump's more, um, you know, like like efforts to put in tariffs and things. I think Kudlow's trying to like. And even there, you know, Trump still he since he's kind of all over the board, he'll say something you know, even when he's in the midst of imposing tariffs on China or whatever, he'll say something like, "Hey, if everyone wants to have free trade, we'll do it." And, and he yeah, kind of yeah. calls their bluff because then all the European yeah. people are, like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, let's not get out of hand here," you know. So it's yeah. didn't the Europeans call his bluff on it? No, no, he called Europe's bluff on it. Um, he offered thought, to drop trade barriers. I thought with they Europe. then afterwards said, "Okay, then," and he was like, uh, "On second thought." I don't know. <laughs> I'm not saying you're wrong. I never heard that ass, but all I heard was I, like, I, he, he I was saw it. Out saying, let's get rid of all the tariff barriers, and everyone kind of, whoa. So, I mean, Bob, in, in general, just to, just to show you the hypocrisy, though, sure. all of a sudden, it's like Nancy Pelosi and Dianne Feinstein are big advocates of David Ricardo. You know, mm. and it's like, what the? No, they weren't at all. This is, right. you know what I mean? So I almost. Well, it is pretty yeah. amazing how t- Donald Trump has managed to actually debunk. Right. David Ricardo and Adam Smith. I mean, for a man that's not an economist and just out of business yeah. to actually be able to uh, yeah. turn those guys cogent, on their head. Yeah. What I, yeah I, so it leads me to say I wish Trump would start mocking the gold standard because then Bernie Sanders would all of a sudden be for right. the gold standard. And yeah. All the Democrats. Okay. Yeah. Got you. Okay, great. Thank you. I, how much time do you have, Bob? Because we're we're coming to an hour now. We've uh, we've got loads of questions. So if you tell me how much time you've got, how about fi- can we go like fifteen more minutes? Okay. So cool. Okay, cool. So maybe we can have you again in the future. I've really enjoyed it. For me, as a economist enthusiast, it's been really great. Um, over on the Tom Woods listener support group, we were both remarking on how um, Stefan. Mul- I don't mean we both as in Tom and I, I mean, me and another viewer were remarking on how Stefan Molyneux on Tom Wood's show, someone that we have uh, admiration for, made an argument about brain, what he called brain drain from third world countries. Uh, The asker of this question is James Klinger. And I thought, basically, the idea was that if intelligent people from third world countries come to the West, then they're not going to be helping make their countries better. And um, I was just, my thought, I had some thoughts to disagree with him on that that view. On the brain drain. On the brain drain. Okay, so so I didn't hear, I haven't heard yet. I know Stefan recently was on Tom's Mm -hmm. show, and so I don't know if that's what this question is, but I haven't listened to that episode. I mean, I plan to, I just haven't listened to it yet, so I can't. 
So just I'm just responding to what you just yeah, read. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, yeah. So I guess yeah, my 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 primary my my first instinct is to say I'm I'm not a collectivist, so I don't think in terms of what's good for that country or you know what I mean. Like it's yeah. if somebody who is an aspiring neurosurgeon wants to leave the country in which he was born and go to medical school in the West and then end up you know being a surgeon in Canada yeah. or you know in Arizona, you know that. I wouldn't say, oh, how dare you? You're leaving behind your, you know, I mean, to me, that's, he, he doesn't know. Anything. And also, um, in terms of like, if you really, even if you wanted to think of it in terms of how could you best help the people back home, well, he goes to wherever he can make the highest income and then send remittances yeah. back. Right. You know, that that's, that's an element too. So it's not clear from that respect. So I don't, um, I don't, I don't know if the person was saying like, oh, the, the 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 the, go, the governments of certain countries should have should shouldn't let these people in because then they're going to make the other people poor. I mean, in general, yeah. you wouldn't you know you could say, well, should people be allowed to leave home when they're eighteen? What if you yeah. got a sick a sick mom? You wouldn't want the yeah. federal government saying, no, if you're if you have a sick parent, you're not allowed to leave home. You know, so yeah. I, I just I think that that would be paternal. So there could be other arguments for restricting immigration, but if I'm saying that particular that's, one. That's Okay. Yeah, really if they come here and make the best of themselves, they're going to actually be in a position where they're capable of doing more good since we have a stable system that can export the goods of their uh, brain. So I'm, I'm going to have at Graham Wright's question because he's persistent. Not only did he ask it in advance, but he's come on the live stream and he's here with us now as his YouTube channel, Man Against the State. Mainstream economists accept that government messing with prices screws things up. So what consequence do they expect from the government messing with interest rates, if not a business cycle? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I, I think the problem is the reason that standard mainstream economists have so, are, are so um, casual about tinkering with interest rates, whereas you're right, most mainstream economists wouldn't want to have like a board in charge of setting oil prices like they would realize no how could you have a board do that you know that doesn't make any sense but yet they have no problem with the federal reserve or the bank of england you know setting interest rates i think the reason is that in in most standard macro models um they're they're very simplistic models and so the interest rate in that world it's not like there's pension funds now that are underfunded because the interest rate's too low you know it's a, it's a very simple thing where the interest rate, you know, the, the lower the interest rate, oh, that might stimulate spending or if the interest rate's too high, it might make spending growth too low. But it's not like there's 10 different sectors and an artificially low interest rate, you know, will cause capital spending in the third stage of production to be higher. You know, the, the kind of distortions and imbalances that can happen in an Austrian framework literally can't exist in a, in a standard macro model because they're so simplistic. Like they just have at best you know, consumption spending and investment spending and maybe government spending. They don't have like different sectors of the economy. So the kind of story that the Austrians tell about how the unsustainable boom happens, there can't be an unsustainable boom in a, in a standard Keynesian model because it's just not complex enough. Okay, here's a question from Brian Morris, a long time listener. Can you have an upward slow, sloping demand curve? You, Bob, can you personally have an upward sloping demand curve? Um, actually, I mean, can one in general, can, can one have an upward sloping demand curve? Um, well, I guess it depends what you mean. So you could have it, I, 
theoretically for a specific good. So let me, um, so, so for people who don't know what the terminology, that what demand curves, you know, they, they show the price plotted against the quantity that the people want to buy of the, of the good or service. So in upwards, so normally you think they'd be downward sloping. So as the price goes down, you, you buy more of the good and, and vice versa. If the price goes up, you buy less of it. So um, if you're talking about overall, then yeah, that's just mathematically, that's got to be true because you only have a certain amount of money. And so if, if things get okay. more expensive, you know, if you're spending all your money on the various things, then yeah, stuff gets more expensive. You, you can only buy less of it. So that's true. Theoretically, if you're just talking about some goods, you could imagine cases like, for example, people say during the Irish pota potato famine, you know, if, 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 the, if things get really expensive, then, um, you know, like if, if potatoes get really expensive, then maybe now to get the basic number of calories your household needs, you can't buy steak anymore. And you got to just all buy potatoes or something. So you can come up with these weird knife edge results where maybe if potatoes get more expensive, you end up buying more potatoes because now you can't afford steak. About, sorry stuff if I missed like this because there was someone at the door. But what about, say, a Gucci bag? If Gucci mm -hmm. or Versace reduced the price of their goods to a tiny thing, uh, people they'd lose their prestige maybe and people would buy less of them yeah yeah great point so again if we're looking at just particular goods so you're you know you're not worried about your overall budget then yeah, yeah that is possible so just real quick some economists it's a tautology and they would say no you can't because they were saying in the case you bring up then it's a different good right like if you just you know the, what the thing is to you oh, that's is quite different. a clever that's quite a yeah. clever objection but going well actually no part of the good you're buying when you buy an expensive gucci bag is the fact that it's expensive so if you then make it a non-expensive bag it's actually a different product that's pretty clever i like right. that yeah Thank so you. yeah so some you know take take that you know I, I know some people would say oh come on that's cheating and other people, mm -hmm. like you say, might say, oh, actually, yeah, I see what yeah, you're saying. So I'm just mentioning, sense. you know, so if, if, but if you are going to allow for that kind of quirk, then, yeah, you can come up with scenarios where if you lower the, or you might think it's stolen, right? You know, you're walking down the street of New York City and someone's trying to sell you a computer for $5, you know, you're going to yeah. think either it's not working and it's fraud or, or it's useful, yeah. Like, yeah, I, so you yes. might you might have a situation like that too. Whereas if it was inside of a store and they were charging fifteen hundred, you might pay you might buy it. So that's kind of what. Gee, how come I would buy one at fifteen hundred but zero at five dollars? It's because you don't think it's the same thing. Right. The luxury good example I gave is probably one of the only things I remember for doing um, standard grades economics in high school. So there you go. They didn't teach me nothing. I got that example. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, Gore McCatchia, I really don't know how to uh, pronounce this dude's name, but he asked if the ideas of positive and negative externalities are compatible with Austrian economics. Um, I, th I think so. So just for the listeners who don't know what that is, so like a positive externality is saying, you know, what, what if we have a market transaction and then we're causing the, the fact that I'm, um, you know, I, that I'm paying you to, to train me in something, you know, to, to yeah. educate me, maybe that has spillover benefits to society. So society as a whole is better off because some people are going and, and getting higher education or something like that. And so, you know, and then a negative externality is stuff where a, a given market transaction might be causing harms to outside people who aren't directly involved in the trade. So pollution or something like that, where, you know, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm buying a TV from the guy who runs the factory, but he's dumping stuff in the river. 
And so people who aren't part of that transit. So the idea is the market price mechanism is not fully capturing the true social benefits and costs of these activities. And so the outcome is not efficient. All right. So that's the standard thing. So there's a lot of problems. Um, Murray Rothbard, I think, has the best treatment of this. Um, I think it's in his essay, A Reconstruction of Welfare and Utility Economics or something like that. He also has a section of Man, Economy and State. So I, I would point readers to that. So there's various ways. I mean, I can certainly acknowledge such a thing as a positive and negative externet. You know, in other words, it would be silly for me to say, well, yeah, if, some, if somebody dumps something in the river, I don't care. And, and the, but the way to deal with that is to say, okay, that's because there's inadequately defined property rights that, you know, right. so if, yeah, if a company is, is dumping stuff in the river and people downstream are getting sick, the, the issue is not, oh, the government needs to come in and levy a tax. I think the issue is, right. You know, how come the court system yeah. is not recognizing yeah. you know the property? How come rights? the state is selling them the right to pollute X amount rather right. than just saying no, knock that off? It's not yeah. because you often uh, the government will write policy documents over who can exploit a river, let's say, and who's and right. at what price. So we've got three questions left, real quick. Okay, um, if we can get round them. So Peter McCain, a, a fellow Scottish libertarian, asks: Is the Luddite fallacy still relevant in this age with the emergence of AI and say art and um, continuing automation at a faster scale. Do you want to explain the Luddite fallacy? So the okay, the idea would be that um, machines are taking our jobs yeah. and that uh, it's going to cause mass unemployment. Yeah. Smash the spinning jenny. Basically. And I, I did do a quite a dedicated section to this in my book i just add i think it was quite a good analysis sorry <laughs> if you do say so if, you, if i do say so myself <laughs> um yeah. yeah so it's i mean so it's still true that the, the, in other words yeah the standard things you would say to somebody who was worried that well gee when you know agriculture became more you know, we had more tractors and things and what's going to happen to all those people now who used to work in agriculture in the 1800s and now in the 1900s they can't, and you know the standard answer is, well, no, it's a good thing. Humanity's richer if we need a smaller fraction of the population to grow all the food. Now those yeah. people are freed up to go work in factories, and then you know once the you know software computer revolution happened, we needed fewer people to work in the factories and manufacturing, and so people were worried, where are all these manufacturing people going to do it? So then we say, well, yeah. they can go into web design or whatever, become accountants, or because you know more people are in, in the sciences or whatever. And so you're right. Now the worry is, well, gee, if, if robots and computers start doing more stuff and self-driving cars, what? So it, it's certainly true that yes, in terms of the uh, just the raw technology and the physical production possibilities, it makes us we have more options now. We have computers that can do work that right now human labor has to do. Yeah, that makes us richer as a society because now we can free up that human labor to do something else because the computers are doing it. Now, it doesn't follow that those particular humans are going to be better off. So mm. we can say historically that has tended to be true. Like, you know, even right. the random person from 1950. Yeah. In the short term, at least. Yeah. 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 So even though, yeah, it's true that like some, you know, when the horse and buggy manufacturers go out of business because of the car, there yeah. might have been some guy who got poorer. Certainly his son is going to be better off growing up in a world with cars rather yeah. than stagecoaches even if the family fortune got ruined. Yeah. So yeah. You know, there's there's that kind of an element. The last thing I'll say on this is just like picture the world of the Jetsons, you know, George Jetson yeah. and how 
to, to get to that world would have we'd have to go through you know all of this this angst okay. over ai and robots doing all the work mm -hmm. so actually some people are terrified of the idea of robots doing all the work you could flip but, it and say no that's what utopia would look like where people just yes. sit around and press buttons and robots do all the work yeah yeah so i i, I kind of an illustration of that came into my head i just imagine say someone's working in a doll factory and some machine comes in that makes dolls faster so he loses his job but say it, people have more money in their pocket so now along with their dolls they're going out buying uh, little gowns for their dolls and he ends up getting a job in the gown making factory and then his his uh, daughter's birthday comes up and because the because he's got more money in his pocket he can actually go out and buy her a doll from her birth for her birthday for cheaper from the very factory that fired him um you know because because now he can afford the the doll despite having been un unemployed for a while so just kind of came up with that just now damn i wish i'd put that in we can back to sex dolls here <laughs> oh uh, that's, an that's, just, that's just an excuse to put that in the intro it's, it's, get more a hits. Bit, it's a little bit of an end joke actually we uh, we tried a video on youtube called um, sex robot controversy and to this day it's got one of the most hits of any of our videos just simply because of the title i don't I think imagine, people yeah. stuck, stuck around to watch it okay so we don't have long so would you like to i can't read your okay range. i thought so that might want to be it, yeah. so yeah. shaky joe Smart. asks is there any way that bastiat's unseen costs can be cultivated and this goes back to uh, frederick bastiat my hero's article that which is seen and that which is not seen in which he says say if you if you run any government program you can very conspicuously see for example the soldier that's put into work by that government spending but what you can't see is the effect on the people who are taxed for that that now don't have extra change in their pocket to buy a sex doll or indeed an ordinary doll or a gown for a doll yeah. is, is there any way of the unseen costs being calculated um well you can certainly i mean yeah, you can. You certainly can qualitatively point to it, but if if the person's saying, "Can you literally estimate it? Can you go measure it?" No, because by its very nature, yeah, it didn't happen. It so no, happen, you, you yeah. can't measure something that's not there. So, yeah. so there's there's that element. Um, I guess what you could do though is you can always make an argument and say, the production that would have occurred in the absence of the government intervention is going to be at least as valuable, you know, measured in GDP or however you want to measure it. Is what the government did instead in other words if, if the government's taking resources from you at gunpoint and then producing something and giving it to you th the most that could possibly be worth is what you would have voluntarily spent your money on right, right? because if you had the option you could have the best the government could do is just mimic what you would have done anyway without the coercion yeah so the government in other words the government can only make you worse off and only if it got extremely lucky could it make you equally as well off so you could make arguments like that. So you could look at it, you know, if the government spends $10 million building a sports stadium, I guess you could make an argument that the community is poorer by at least 10 million of what else would have been done instead because, you know, the government wastes resources. So yeah. you could, you could say something like that, but yeah, I, I don't know that you could say, Oh, it would have been 22 million. Right. Uh, you, you, could make some, you could make some assumptions hmm. and you could do like a regression and look at it before and after, but it would be pretty speculative. It wouldn't be just measuring it the way you could go say how much do people spend on sneakers last year? Because again, yeah. we're talking about 
what didn't happen because of the intervention. So there's nothing there to measure. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much for staying with us. Last question. James Klinger asked, more or less, he said, I've been trying to come to grips with Marx and I just don't find it coherent. Like, is, would you say that, do you, you understand Marxism and would you say that it's a coherent uh, philosophy, worldview or economic theory? <coughs> okay, so <laughs> there are some really well-educated, intelligent Marxists, okay? And so if I were going to debate economics with somebody, I would rather be a Marxist than like a Hillary Clinton fan. Right. You know what I mean, like, because in other words, there's, you know, Marxists, they know something screwed up with the world and they look at history and see injustice. It's just the way they diagnose it and their solutions, I think are yeah. totally wrong. But so there, there's that, there's that element. So I don't no, I certainly do not know. I'm not an expert on Marxism. Um, I know that, that Mises, for example, has documented a lot of yeah. in, yes. internal contradictions that seem pretty compelling to me in Bumbavark, um, you know, if you read Karl Marx in the close of his system. Yes. So there, but you know, Bombard just in my mind just eviscerates yes. Marx's explanation of, of what's called surplus value. Like, so how is it if the labor theory of value is true, then how is it that the capitalists earn income? And so Marx's theory was, oh, you know, the 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 capitalist pays the workers the subsistence level, like what they need to reproduce their body power. But then since they put more labor into the product, that that's what the capitalist sells it for. Because in other words, a worker can make a thousand dollars worth of product, but only need to consume eight hundred dollars worth of you know subsistence, like that kind yeah. of. So yeah. that surplus, that gap, is what the capitalist skims off the top. So right. the yeah. problem is, surplus if that's value. true, then that means the rate of return on investment should be higher in industries that Which are more labor have. intensive. Right, sense. you know, it's like 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 hair hair cutters. There's more labor, whereas oil oil rigs out in the middle of the ocean that's more capital intensive. And so, if the, if the source of the capitalist profit is that they're skimming off the laborers, then the industries that are more labor intensive should have a higher rate of return. And yet, that's not true. The rate yeah, of right. return is about the same adjusted for risk. So that's a basic contradiction that Marx tried to reconcile, and Bobrick just blows right. that up. So and it's. And just one other example that I remember Mises points out that on the one hand, Marx says, you know, workers just get paid the subsistence level. On the other hand, Marx had a doctrine of the progressive immiseration of the proletariat, where the proletariat just keeps getting poorer and poorer. And so Mises, wait a minute, if they're getting paid subsistence, they can't keep getting poorer because they'll be dead. You know, so just things like that that don't and fully. That's called seem, the iron law of wages, isn't it? The idea that capitalists will pay. Um, basically subsistence, the minimum amount they can right. possibly pay, and they will drive uh, prof, uh, pay down to the bottom, whereas the historical evidence says the opposite, that right. people just get richer and richer, even at the bottom in free market countries. Yeah. Another well, one is, um, you know, Marx thinks that his laws of the historical evolution, you know, going from slavery to feudalism to capitalism, then ultimately to socialism, communism, he thinks those are like laws of history. Right. And it's unscientific to try to, to dabble with them. So Mises says, okay, well, if you're a true Marxist, then you should advocate laissez-faire capitalism yeah, and let the current the system you know, and, develop. And in a way, I reckon that in a way Marx will be proved to be right, because if we have full automation and everything's automatically provided for you uh, because we've got such abundance, well, no one's going to be able to sell anything because 
uh, because it's not got any value because it's so abundant. So they'll give it away because they don't want it taking space in their house or in their factory. So if we do get full automated, uh, a fully automated economy, in a way that's like both a communist and a laissez-faire utopia. Uh, so I, I, I would. The word utopia has no place on this podcast. <laughs> on this podcast, I would add that um, it's been said that say Bon Barwerk and Mises really present Marx better than Marx presents Marx. They worked really hard to understand what he was trying to say and prevent present his views in the most credible argument in the most credible form formulation. So you go, hey, maybe actually Marx is right about that. And then they go, but what he doesn't consider is this. Boom. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, okay. yeah. What was Marx's theory for knocking up his housekeeper or throwing her out penniless into the street? What part of his uh, what part of his working class hero uh, sort of aspect was that all about? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right for those of your listeners who don't know, like Marx in his personal life was yeah. by no means a, a hero of the people or of the, yeah. of the working class by any stretch. Okay, Bob, all I can say is thank you so much for coming in the show. Please. Yeah, you're our hero. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're, uh, please buy Bob's new book, Contra Krugman. It's a collection of articles over years, and not only will it equip you to flay economic fallacies to death, um, it will do so in such a way that also highlights the hypocrisy of the world's most foremost Keynesian, Paul Krugman. Um, so, um, thank you so much. Take care. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, just it's, it's contracrugmanbook.com is where people can go. And I had fun. And uh, take care, guys. Hope thank to see you, you again. Bye. Bye.